You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Secret Rooms. Definitive Edition. Chapter 3. The Old House. From the Journal of Abigail Gray. March 1873. Nine and a half years ago. Weirwood Manor came into view beyond the shaded rows of cedar trees lining the path on either side as I clung to the bucking seat beneath me with tired fingers. From within the coach, the reactions from the youngest former residents of Clearwater were fairly audible. Little heads protruded from between the shutters, taking in the surroundings and chattering on their finer points. Some redoubled frightened sobs while others buoyed up trembling spirits. To me, what mattered most was the company we would keep and the treatment we would receive from those in charge. Everything else was simply a backdrop for our exile. There were boys and girls standing out on the lawns of the manor, and of their number I could see few older than myself. The state of their clothes was reassuringly clean, although with noticeable mended seams and patches. Several of the smaller occupants clustering beside the taller ones, and groups stood apart from one another, delineating the different towns. I do not know, even to this day, if the rehoming of children during this still ongoing war against the Wendigo became common practice, or if it was a rarity that occurred only when remarkable people offered up their larger homes to those who had little. But it suits my disposition to at least hope that Weirwood was not the only instance. As our train of two coaches approached the manor, my gaze flicked once again to our driver, Nathan. I had spotted the scarring marks from shackles at his ebony wrists and the mottled vestiges of rope burn at his collar. He kept this well hidden with a scarf, but that length of cotton had revealed its chilling secret when he scratched at his neck in the heat. He wasn't much of a talker, and my probing had not yielded a point of view, which made that couple of days a vexing and fruitless journey. My mind, with lack of stimulation forthcoming, had thus dwelled often upon the moment when we left our town. Kelly Bronson's father had taken one look at Nathan before roughly pulling his daughter back from the front coach. He shouted as she protested that he'd never entrust his little girl to the care of a Negro. Nathan had not reacted, and two more children had been removed, which of course agitated the hell out of those remaining. They were now seeing themselves as trapped partway between the safe home they had spent their lives and a frightening unknown destination that they had been told was their salvation. Now with one of their potential protectors and a representative of the whole enterprise being painted as dangerous and untrustworthy, many children began to echo the sentiments of Mr. Bronson in shrill, panicked voices and had to be urged back into their seats by their tearful parents. My father lifted me up to sit beside Nathan and locked eyes with the man for a short moment. My mother slipped a letter into my coat pocket and told me to give it to Catherine, and I turned to look at them. She was dressed in red and white, wearing lipstick for, I now realize, no other reason than that I would remember her more vividly. And bless her shrewd thinking, it worked. My father, mouth obscured by his bushy moustache, 
then patted his right fist into his open left palm, and I returned the gesture. I looked over yonder at the hill. I had barely known this man until I was nearly at my fifth birthday, when he finally returned from the war. I still didn't know him, and now he had no more time. Most likely feeling the same thing, he hopped back onto the side of our coach, eye to eye with me. He looked as though he was about to say something he had never before uttered in his life. Then deciding against it, he removed his chestnut-brown Stetson from his head and placed it over mine, where it dropped down, covering my eyes for a moment. My hand went up to pull it away and protest that he could not give this to me, but he was already back on the ground and we were moving. He stood there beside my mother. His brown hair, now exposed, was graying at the temples and growing thin on top. A tear rolled down my cheek, and I wiped it away fiercely, running my fingers over the ridged band that encircled this precious hat, and locking eyes on the two of them as they slowly drew away. Nathan urged the horses onward to the manor, and it loomed all the larger as we approached. The great, wide edifice was fronted by a line of towering columns, drawing my mind to pictures of ancient Greece and Rome in books I now wish I'd read more of. They supported a flat roof, atop which I glimpsed a balcony that I made a mental note to gain access to. I figured you could see for miles from way up there, behind the balustrades. The windows of the house were flanked on all floors with dark green shutters, the front porch skirted with scented laurels, and in the air the harsh chirp of crickets could be heard, excited and verbose in the encroaching dusk. The lawn stretched far out toward a high wall, which ran around the estate, enclosing us all in a wide garden with the house at the center. I could now see vegetable patches lined up and sectioned off, and if I strained my ears, I could just make out the sounds of the chickens, pigs, and goats coming from an enclosure near the stables to the west. It would almost have seemed a little too perfect had the house been cleaned spick and span, but as I neared the walls, I could see the wear, the cracks, and the reinforcements to its frame. The whiteness was not as pure as it first seemed. This was a place that had weathered many hard years before the goblins came, before it was set to this new task. I would later learn that tidy and organized did not require perfection. On the front steps stood a lady who wore pants, a long leather duster, and a stern expression. The carriages drew to a halt, and the children tentatively emerged, their bodies tired from two days' travel, and their expressions wary of this imposing woman. The twins moved close behind me as I climbed the steps and retrieved my mother's letter. She took it and glanced at the handwriting, then looked us up and down. Um, Abigail Gray. Pearl's daughter. This here's Joanna. And this is David. A pleasure to meet you all. Abby, you look like your mother did when I last saw her. Is that good? It'll do just fine. You three will be all right here, 
all that you will. The rest of the children gathered round to listen to the woman, who spoke out from her place atop the steps of her grandiose front porch. My brother and sister, only just turned seven, turned their faces up gravely, but also held on to a hand of mine apiece. My name is Catherine, and you will address me as Miss Holloway. Now, I understand this has been quite an emotional week for all of you, and I will not lie, that is unlikely to change today. You are the last group we will be taken in here at Weirwood. These children of Buckley and Coltsburg make up the rest will show you how to work. You are here for the time being because it is the safest place. We grow our own food, there's clean water from the creek, and as of today, just enough room for all of us. Now, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. My staff are right now closing and locking the gates of the high perimeter wall bordering the estate. This wall has been fortified to keep out the goblins, as have the gates. Adults will leave on hunting trips and scout for supplies and trade in neighboring areas. You will most likely live in this house for many years, and whilst you do, it is absolutely forbidden for anyone to set foot outside the gates without my permission. This is to prevent you coming to harm. But more importantly, it is an unbreakable rule set in place to keep out infection. If we are careful, and if we are lucky, the epidemic will not reach us here, and the U.S. Army will have a victory. If we are even luckier, then when it is safe to return to our homes, the families we have left behind will greet us with open arms. Hold on to that thought. It will keep you going when things are hardest. But do not forget this. We all are blessed to be here, healthy and alive for the time being. Whatever happens, we are the ones who were loved. Her last words were spoken in a lower, reverent tone that brought a new atmosphere to the group. We were shown to our quarters, a dorm room adjacent to the already occupied three in the east wing of Weirwood. I rushed in with eleven other girls, each of us claiming a cot. Joanna picked the one that I gestured to, next to mine. With David gone to the boys' dormitory in the west wing, she looked alone and forlorn, so I made a mental note to introduce my sister to some agreeable girls of her own age. The sheets and blankets laid out for us were nothing special, Nearly all were old and mended repeatedly. Nevertheless, my body crumbling, I lay face down and inhaled the aroma of my cotton pillow. Both of my parents' faces were fresh in my mind, and I planned to keep them that way. Around me I could hear the other girls breaking, days of staving off the reality of our new state of normality slamming home. The sound of their unified grief and sorrow was palpable, and I began to well up, trying my best to remain strong and resolute. I lasted up until the point when Joanna pushed herself under my arm to be held, and we both wept quietly together. The staff of the house respectfully left Clearwater's refugees to sob through the early evening, until all were numb with aching heads. Of this I am grateful in retrospect. We had emptied ourselves, and became receptive to sustenance and rest, 
and that's a markedly better scenario than trying to fill up a bag when there's already cats inside. We were called in first to dinner, since ours was recognized as the greatest need of that day. The helpings were modest, the fair plain, but welcome. And then, as the evacuees from Buckley lined up outside the hall, we were ushered back to our dorm. As we left, a blonde girl at the front of the line called out to us. Sleep well. And she meant it, too. Back in the room, the girls and I sat on our beds with our blankets draped over us, exchanging thoughts on our resituation. Many other children spoke of their intentions to return home as soon as possible and fantasized aloud as to what they would do once they got there. Everyone avoided the possibility that there might not be a person left alive to return to. When things got quieter, Susan Hendrickson began to tell us stories. These had been of interest back at our little town, but here they were a life raft to cling to. Sometimes Susan told grand, heroic tales with lots of interesting characters. Sometimes she related accounts she had read in a history book, and sometimes she pulled from folklore and mythology, talking about all the scary-ass monsters that we figure are waiting for us out there in the shadows. And sometimes she managed to spin a yarn together that was a balance of all three. And I don't mind telling you that those were my favorite stories of all. A particularly obstinate girl among our number, by the name of Doris Cooper, always objected to the stories which seemed real but were clever blends of fact and fiction. Doris, it seemed, always lacked everything clearly labeled. What's this one, Susan? One of them fake stories or one of the true? This one's true. I was reading about it in my History of Virginia book all the way up here. Susan hefted this weighty tome with some ceremony. It's something that happened in Jamestown some 250 years ago in 1622. Our forefathers, the colonists, had been fighting with the Powhatan savages for years. They didn't want us on their land, but we were looking for gold. They never found no gold. No, they never did. But men was being murdered left and right, and everyone was very afraid that the murdering wouldn't stop. So we made a deal. We said no more and invited the savages to come drink with us. Drink with savages? But there was this man called Dr. Potts and he helped poison the savages half of the liquor. So when they drank the toast, everyone on their side fell down dead. Good. And every savage who didn't die got killed by someone on our side. Well, that's horrible. That's your great-great-grandfather. Actually, that would have been her great, 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 great grandfather. And as far as I know, he would have lived in Ireland in 1622. That's right. My family didn't come to America until 1832, back when Clearwater was founded, which my granddaddy helped with, by the way. What did the savages do? They gave up. Took them a while, but they gave up in the end. But that ain't the real twist to this tale. Did any of y'all catch the name of the doctor of this place who saw to Joanna's cough earlier today? No. No. Tell him, Joanna. Oh, it, it was, it was Dr. Potts. And a chill filled the room. 
You think he's as poor as the doctor's great, 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 great? Trifle convenient that this was the piece of history I just happened to read on the road. Do you think it might be fate putting us in his path? I say you make your own fate. That's fine. You go have a drink with Dr. Potts tomorrow. We'll see if you come back alive. I will, and I will. He wouldn't poison you. You ain't a savage. I don't know. She can be pretty savage sometimes. <laughs> That's fine. You laugh it up. I'll find out for sure. As this bloody tale of treachery played itself out, I found my attention drifting from the group, and my thoughts run into the many people we would be sharing this enormous house with. For some reason, that pretty blonde girl at the dinner line popped into my head, and I made up my mind to find her tomorrow. My daddy says it was the Negroes that started out the blackness. Doris! Shh! What's the blackness? It's the sickness that's upon America now. My daddy told me they brought it with them from Africa. They were brought here centuries ago. It would have happened before now. <gasps> well, that's the way their zombie curse works. They let us think everything's fine. And then there's a war, and they get their gosh darn freedom. That's when they cast the black magic of theirs. That don't make a lick of sense on any level. Pastor told me it wasn't their magic, though. He says it was the Lord. Well, that's even dumber. Are you calling the Lord dumb, Abigail Gray? No, I'm calling... Because you know he's got a lake of fire for folks like you. No, I'm calling the notion Pastor McCready put in your head dumb as a sack of hammers. Why would God do that to us? Again, it's because of the Negroes. What? Now the war's done, and they're acting like us. Wearing fancy clothes, walking about where they please. King James's Bible says they're to be working the fields. We went against the word of the Lord, and so so he's cast one of them one of them Old Testament plagues on us. Yep. That is somehow the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well done, Doris. That's almost impressive. King James rewrote the Bible, Doris. He changed bits of it to help slave traders and folks who wanted to get rid of women they thought were causing trouble. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live wasn't in there before 1611. God wrote the Bible. I give up. You'll see. It's letting Negroes make decisions that'll be the death of this country. You, you watch that old boy, um, Nathan. He's got it in him. I can tell. That was it. I sank back down on the bed and pulled the covers up over my head, wanting to scream into the pillow. It was that or give Doris a black eye. I'd then have to explain to whoever came rushing into the room once the odious girl started her wailing. With nothing further to say, and no possible way of swaying her perspective as poisoned as the poetons, I arranged myself into the framework of sleep, and that seemingly signaled to the rest of the group that we were done for the night. The conversation had stalled, and I could hear heads hitting pillows amid the final whispers of the evening. I'd like to tell you that over time Doris became a good person, put aside the things she'd been told and made up her own mind about the world. I'd like to tell you that.
You have been listening to episode three of Secret Rooms, The Old House, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Hector Gray, performed by Alex Shaw. Doris Cooper, performed by Loretta Saylor. Susan Hendrickson and Pearl Gray, performed by Maureen Foley. Joanna Gray, performed by Lyra Shaw. Lucy Weatherfield, performed by Theo Lee. One Wild West, composed and performed by Edward Blakely of Shockwave Sound. Silent Winter, composed by Running Wolf. Drums of the Deep, Stoic Morning and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Wazenski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Secret Rooms Definitive Edition is available in its entirety to own via Bandcamp, along with the rest of the audiobooks from the New Century Multiverse. So if you love the story, that is a great way of giving back. We also thrive on positive reviews. Costs a few minutes of your time, means the world to us. And it spreads the word. So you can post those on iTunes or on Amazon, where you can find the Kindle versions and the beautiful paperback editions of these books. 